All right, good morning, familia. Welcome all of you, those of you that are here in the West Worship Service. Welcome all of you beautiful people sitting in the East Worship Service. For those of you that are visiting for the first time, my name is Hannibal, one of the pastors here. Um, and I think that this is a great time to be part of the church and be in the church because we are walking through the Bible, doing this series called The Greatest Story, The Story of God and His Bride. And basically what we're doing is going from Genesis all the way to the book of uh, Revelations, choosing passages and stories and events that give us the big picture of the Bible, the story of redemption, the way some scholars puts it. And the way we have been framing this and the way I have been explaining this is that, is that in this story there are four different parts, four different sections, the creation part, fall, redemption, and restoration, four different chapters, four different sections, and uh, previously, we already talked about the creation section, in which we spent some time looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in which we see God's original design for this creation. Last week, we went into the next section, which is the section of the fall, when sin enters the world and everything that God has created beautiful and fulfilling now is damaged or fractured by sin. And today, the story that we're looking at today is a famous story. So just by show of hands, both here in the West and in the East, how many of you guys know the story of Noah? Please, there you go. So maybe you should just pray and finish, go home, because everyone knows this story. My job as a preacher, though, is to help you see things that you probably didn't see before, or to help you understand things that are plainly there, but you probably noticed, never noticed before. Um... What I find interesting about this story, about the story of Noah, is that really it's a known and familiar story. And if you have been here in the church for a while, I would always say that the, one of the dangers of knowing these kind of stories, quote unquote, so much, is that it's easy to take it for granted and to ignore things that are there that are extremely important for us to see. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about Noah's world, Noah's God, and Noah's faith. Noah's world, Noah's God, and Noah's faith. Let's go with point number one, Noah's world. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that I gave a whole description of what sin is according to the Bible, according to Genesis chapter 3. And these are some of the things that I mentioned last week. I said that sin is dangerous, is destructive, and it ruins everything and everyone. That sin is dangerous, is destructive, and it ruins uh, things and people. And what we find in the Noah's story, though, is that there are two more components, if you will, or two more descriptions of what sin is. So sin is not only dangerous, destructive, and it ruins things and people, but sin is also contagious and progressive, meaning that sin always brings more sin. That sin is also contagious and progressive. So Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And immediately we see in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain kills his brother Abel. As an example of how, how dangerous and progressive sin is. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, which is part of one of the chapters we read today, 
we see that everything is out of control. Everything is a chaos. Humanity in its totality is repeating the, parent, the, the pattern they inherited from their parents, Adam and Eve. See, this is one of the things that I want you to see that you probably never noticed before. What we see in Genesis chapter 6 is the repetition and the progression of the pattern that they inherited from Adam and Eve from Genesis chapter 3. This is where we theologians uh, take the concept of sinful nature, that we have inherited sinful nature. So look at what it says in verse 2. Then the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now listen, there are books and books written about that verse. Explaining what that means, who the sons of God were, who the daughters of men were. And I'm not going to spend time on that. Number one, because I don't have time. And two, because I don't want to. <laughs> and part of the reason why I don't want to spend time in that is because that is not the main point of the narrative. If you want to know more about that, just send me an email and I'll send you all the, the, the books you can read. What I want you to see, though, is that there's a reason why I highlighted those three words. Saw, attractive, and took. Doesn't that remind you of something? Isn't that the same thing that Eve did in Genesis chapter 3? She saw the tree. She find, she find, them, uh, she find it delightful or attractive. And she took it. Isn't that crazy? The same pattern. About 1,000 years after. Because sin is contagious. And sin is progressive. One sin leads to another. And we know that to be true because of what we see in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. This is what's super interesting. The word wickedness there can also be translated as depraved. Meaning that humanity, because sin entered the world, now is in a condition, natural condition of depravity. Just, just in case anybody gets uh, scared here, depravity doesn't mean that you are the worst person in the world. That, that doesn't mean that. Depravity means that you have the potential to do crazy things. That I have the potential to do crazy things because of the sin that lives in me. Now, I want you to see how in Noah's world, sin is progressive more and more. Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So and so evil this Noah's world has become that unless God intervenes, Everything God created good and beautiful will be completely ruined. So and so wicked the world became that unless God does something, sin will destroy everything. 
By the way, that is the power and the presence of sin. That is what sin does. So look at what God says in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blow out men whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. I want you to stop there for a second and just think about this. What do you think God feels as he has to destroy the good creation he made, the very good humanity he made that now has been completely destroyed and fractured by sin. Now, if you don't get the picture of what's happening, now you got to read verses 11 and 12. He makes it even more clear. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Notice that it wasn't corrupt just because they did evil things. It's corrupt because God sees it as corrupt. And the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You know what the word corrupted can be translated uh, like? Disfigured. It's a picture word. It's a word that creates this image of what sin does. That is dangerous, that is contagious, and that is progressive in such a way that it disfigures things that are beautiful and perfect. And it gives us this picture of what happens when sin entered the world. People that have been created in the image of God, a beautiful creation that reflected God, now is completely disfigured. Church, this is part of the reason why, and I said that before, is this is not, this is part of the reason why we, should just, we shouldn't just think of our sin as oh, it's something that we have there, but we must hate our sin because it disfigures things. This is not one of those things that you just don't like about yourself, you know? I have things that I don't like about myself. Like, for example, if, if I gain weight, I get this natural floaty here around the waist. It comes really handy when I go to the pool, but I don't like it. But that is not the same thing, you know? I don't like that about myself, but I must hate what I have inside, my sin. So in, in Noah's new world... In, in us corrupted world, everything is so messed up that the only thing God wants to do and can do, listen up, church, is to recreate what he had already created. That's the way some theologians would put it. The story of Noah is the recreation of what has been broken. It is God doing something to rescue this Rescue humanity and the world of total destruction. This is why in verse 13, God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And just in case you miss it, you could see the effect of sin. Sin not only affects us, but it affects creation. Not only sin deserves the wrath of God, but because of our sin, the whole creation will experience the wrath of God. And I know there's got to be at least one person here or in the East or watching online in which the thought is, how could God be so awful? 
You don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever wondered that? If God is a God of love, if God is a God of mercy, why would God do this? And if that's the question, I invite you to read this story slowly because I want you to see that this is not God punishing good people. There were already evil people. What I want you to see is this is, this is a good, faithful, and loving God intervening, interfering in love. So sin does not destroy everything because God sometimes must inflict pain in order to save. Have you ever seen the story that way? This is God stopping sin from taking over everything. This is God intervening so he could reverse what sin is doing. See, it is so easy to read that story and completely miss that. And just as much, it is so easy to read that story and completely miss the heart of God. What is it that God is going through as he has to do this? Which then leads me to point number two. Noah's God. See, I want, I want you to pay attention to two verses that, that should give you this beautiful and amazing picture of God. Look at what it says in verses 6 and 7. And the Lord, this, he says this before the flood, by the way. And the Lord regretted that he had made man and the earth, and he grieved him to his heart. And he says, I am sorry that I've made them. He regretted, he grieved, which by the way, the translation in other Bibles is, he changed his mind and he was sorry that he had made human beings. And these are all expressions of pain. And this is God showing us what he's going through as he knows that he needs to stop the uncontrollable, self-destructing behavior of broken people. It hurts him. He paints this picture of a God that is not indifferent to pain and sin. He paints a picture of a God that feels. Now, to help you understand that, we have to do a little bit of theological work. So I'm going to need you to put your thinking hat. And I'm going to need you to bear with me because I really think that you need to understand a theological concept that if you get it, that will give you a beautiful picture of who God is. Now, listen, you don't need to remember the theological term. That doesn't make you more spiritual. Be bragging about the term. What I want you to understand is what that term says about the character and nature of God. Amen? So I need you to do me a favor here and in the east, please look at the person next to you and say, please pay attention. Go ahead. All right. We need to talk about the immutability of God. Doesn't that make me look smart automatically? 
the immutability of God. And that simply means this, that God cannot change, and God does not change. And somebody's got to be saying, well, Hannibal, you should just say that. Well, I want you to remember the name, though, because someone is going to use that name at one point, the immutability of God. But if God does not change and God cannot change, then we have to ask two questions. If God does not change, then how can we explain that God changed his mind? Isn't that a valid question? How many of you guys had that question? Just right now. Don't lie. Just right now. If God does not change, then how can we explain that God changed his mind? Valid question. The second question is, if God does not change, how can you explain that God feels something, like regret and sorry, when he sees the condition of people? Doesn't that tell you then that people actually change God by what they do? That's a valid question. Thinking hands, all right? And I want you to hold those two questions, and I'm going to get back to that. We're going to get back to that later on. Uh, you could clearly see that I'm doing my teacher thing right now, right? It's, we, we're going to get back to those, so, to, to, so don't regret those, don't, don't, don't drop those questions. We will get back to that. I want us to think a little bit about what does it mean for God, for, God, uh, for us to say that God does not change, the immutability of God. Uh, and I'm going to quote two uh, theologians that I highly respect, one Baptist, for those of you that have a Baptist background, and one Presbyterian, for those of you that are Presbyterians, Presbyterian background, um, these two guys really gave me a good picture of what this means. One is Wayne Grudem, known theologian. Look at what he says. God is unchanging. He does not change. In his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Translation, this is what Grudem says. That God is unchanging, that God does not change in four specific areas. By the way, he's not the only theologian that says that. Most theologians will say the same thing. God is unchanging first in his being, meaning that God by nature cannot change. Who he is cannot change. How he views the world and what he does cannot change. This is one of the main differences between God and us. We change all the time, but God never changes. This is, for example, a great, a great, a great example of this is when we think of, of God as love. That's, that's a good concept to have in mind when we're thinking about the flood. Because the Bible says that God is love. In his being, he is love. Therefore, everything he is is love. Everything he does is love. Everything he allows is in love because God cannot change. Amen? Do me a favor, look at the person next to you and say, God cannot change. Even if it doesn't make any sense to us. The second thing that Gruden says that is biblically sound is that God does not change in perfection. You know what that means? That God is always perfect. That what God says is perfect, that what God thinks is perfect, that what God allows is perfect, that what God brings is perfect. That God makes no mistakes ever, even if you think that you're a mistake. Because God is perfect. Do me a favor, look at the person next to you and say, God does not change. Now, it's getting louder. I could even hear the people from the east over here. <laughs> the third thing that Gruden says, that the biblical sound is that God is unchanging in promises. 
This is what we just talked about. This is what we just sang here in the West Worship. That God makes promises and he does not change. That if God makes our promises, regardless of timing, regardless of we see it or don't see it, regardless if we sense it or don't sense it, God will fulfill his promises. Why? Because he's perfect and because he does not change. Grudem also says that he's unchanging in purposes. Meaning that because God does not change, he always fulfills his promises and purposes. That he accomplishes what he says he will accomplish. Regardless of what we see or don't see. Regardless of what we feel or don't see. Regardless of how long it takes, God always fulfills his purposes. Because God does not change. This is why the immutability of God is so important. Because he gives us this beautiful, amazing, humongous picture of a God that is completely infinite. He's not limited by anything, restricted by anything, controlled by anything. He's never caught by surprise by anything. God does not change and he cannot change. Amen? Now, you guys still with me? Gruden also says, that God does act and feel emotions and feels differently and acts differently according to different situations. Now, I think that it's accurate to say that the Bible shows that God feels things. That he feels emotions. Isaiah 62 says that he rejoices. Psalm 78 says that he grieves. Uh, Exodus 32 says that he feels holy anger. Psalm 103 says that he feels compassion toward his children. Um, Isaiah 54 and Psalm 103 says that he feels his steadfast love. And this text shows us that God feels pain when? When he sees our sin and what our sin does. If you're a parent, or a grandparent, or a great-grandparent, you get that. Because there's nothing that hurts more than when you see the people you love doing things that will destroy them. Isn't that true? It will be impossible. God will stop being holy if he sees the condition of broken people and doesn't feel pain. Or anger. He will stop being holy. Now, but I want you to see that not only he feels things, but that he acts differently according to different situations. You want me to give you an example of that? You know the story, the story of Jonah. You remember what he says about Nineveh? I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. Go over there and tell them that I'm going to destroy them unless they repent. And the people in Nineveh repented. So what happened? God acted differently. He forgave them and he didn't destroy Nineveh altogether. And that's super important because not only he paints this picture that is infinite, that is powerful, that is almighty, that is outside this world, that is above everything, but that at the same time is so personal. Is so close to us that he acts 
and feels different according to different situations. Only Christianity presents a God like that. Only Christianity presents a God that is almighty and infinite and powerful and amazing and so personal that feels and acts differently according to different situations. So now we got to bring back the two questions. Right, class? And the questions were, if God does not change, how can we explain that God is changed his mind? And if God does not change, how can we explain that he feels things when he sees uh, the sin of people and what sin does? Isn't that a contradiction? And I would say, no. Actually, the most theological answer is that. No. You just need to understand how God could be sovereign and divine and fulfill his purposes and how he can feel and act differently according to different situations. And this is where the second theologian comes in. It has been super helpful to me. This is how he explained it. John Frame, God eternal decree does not change. It ordains change. God evaluates different events and different in different ways. Those evaluations themselves are fixed in God's eternal plan. But they are genuine evaluations of the events. Translation, John Frame says this, rightly so. God has decrees. He has a plan. He has purposes. He's sovereign. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. God has an eternal plan. But in a very supernatural, unique way, even what he feels and even how he changes his mind is part of his original plan. Pooh! Isn't that crazy? Even what he feels and how he changes his mind are part of his original plan. One of you is going to say like, what? And all I could say is, yeah. This is, see, this is one of those in which you have to be able to accept what the truth says, even if from a human perspective doesn't make any sense. Because if you only take one, you will struggle in your faith. Because if you only take one, God will not be as magnificent as he is in your head. See, Noah's world was completely corrupted. But the God of Noah was a God that was infinite and personal at the same time. It is a God that is not uh, controlled by anything, not restricted by anything, nor surprised by anything. And yet, it's a God that feels and grieves and acts differently according to different situations. Yes, God, uh, Noah's world was completely messed up. But Noah's God was a God that is not indifferent to pain, that is relentless, that he will not allow sin to have the last word, that he will do whatever he had to do to stop allowing sin to destroy everything he had created. 
It is because God is perfect. It is because God is unchanging. It is because he's, being, he's, he's unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises that the flood had to happen. Now, this is super interesting because even though I'm using the name Noah a number of times, this story at the end of the day is not about Noah. It's about the God that Noah knew. It was about Noah's faith, the object of his faith. Point number three, Noah's faith. Have you ever wondered why is it that Noah, in the New Testament, especially in, the, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, is shown or presented as one of the heroes of our faith? Actually, it shows us that his faith was unshakable. And the tendency is for many people to see Noah and say something similar to, I'm going to be like Noah. I'm going to have the faith that Noah had. And that's all good. The, 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 thing, the mistake that you can make, though, is that this story is not about Noah's faith. The object of Noah was not his faith. The object of Noah's faith was God. It's because he had a big picture of who God is, that he was willing like a crazy man to build an ark where there was not even rain. It wasn't because he was a super mighty man of faith. It's because he had an, un an unshakable faith in the God that told them to build the ark. Now, I want to walk you through the story so I, because I want to show you that. And I'm going to go quick because I only have five minutes left. That means that I have like 10, 15. Um, no, in five minutes, I'm going to show you really quick. Why is it that Noah did what he did? So look at what it says. Look at the description that we find of him in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the word favor there is the word grace. You know what that means? That Noah was just another sinful person. But that he understood that he had received the grace of God, that he was a recipient of the grace of God. Noah knows that he's a sinner, but he also knows that he has received the grace of God. And it is because he has received the grace of God that he lives differently to everybody else in his generation. How do we know that? Because look at what happened in verse 9. Noah was righteous, a righteous man, blameless in his own generation. Noah walked with God. The order of those verses are extremely important. Grace before behavior. He was blameless. He, wanted to, he didn't want to surrender to his sin. He was righteous. He wanted to have a righteous relationship with God and others because he walked with God. And why did he walk with God? Because he understood that he had been a recipient of grace. Listen, this is the whole argument of Noah's faith. Noah not only believed in God. Noah believed God. Not only Noah believed in God. Noah believed God. You want to know what faith is? It's that second one. Believing in God is not enough. The devil believes in God. He's believing God to the point 
that when God says to Noah, build the ark, okay. Look at what happens here in chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make the end of all, this, of all flesh, verse 14, make yourself an ark and don't stop. You know what's interesting about these verses? That there are no questions asked. No arguments. No say, oh, hold on a second, what does that mean? He just did it. The Bible doesn't say, well, how is it that Noah came to believe in God that way? But we know for a fact that he believed in God that way. That he knew God so much. That not only he believed in him, but he believed him to the point that when God says, build the ark, he built it. Actually, this becomes even more clear in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the description that Hebrews gives us about Noah. Verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he has not seen anything yet. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark uh, for the saving of his household. And that phrase is amazing. Uh, that's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. The word reverent fear because he shows us that Noah at the same time is afraid of God. Because God is God. But that at the same time, he finds him beautiful and amazing and attractive. Because he's love and mercy and a God full of grace. See, I think that you and I get in trouble when we only pick one of these. I think that our faith struggles when we are, we are only afraid of God and we don't, we don't find him beautiful. Or when we only find him beautiful but we're not afraid of him. No, it's an example of faith. And I'm going to walk you really quick about how he became a man like that. Ready? You're going to say to the person, ready? Look at here. This is what faith looks like according to Noah. You must think. You must have a conviction. And you must commit. Our faith is thinking faith. Noah knew it. He knew who God was. He understood how God, what God wanted. He knew it. This is not inherited faith. This is not brainwashed faith. This is thinking faith. And we reason to the point that it becomes a conviction. Do you know what a conviction is? That regardless of what happens, and regardless of what people say, and regardless of how crazy you look, building an ark in the middle of the desert, because you know who God is, it becomes a conviction to the point that it becomes a commitment. The Bible says that for about 120 years, he was a herald of righteousness. So at the very least, we could say that maybe it took him 120 years to build the ark. Reason, conviction, commitment. Now the story continues. The flood comes and the water disappears. And look at what happens. And I'm going to have to skip, you guys, uh, some of these verses. Let's go to verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. And this is what God told Noah. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall I... Shall all flesh be cut off the waters by the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then to confirm that, he gives a sign to Noah. And I'm going to go all the way to verse 13. He says, I have set my bow, that's the sign, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the air, and the bow is seen in the clouds. And that image of the bow will become a very important image and is the image that you and I can never forget. See, every time you find that word bow in the Old Testament, it's a description of a weapon. It's a weapon of destruction. And some scholars, not everyone agrees with this, but some scholars would say that when God is putting this bow in heaven, the rainbow, it's almost like God saying, I'm hanging up this weapon of destruction. But other scholars would say that there's a significance of why that bow is not facing down, but it's facing up. And I'm with those guys. Because I believe that that's, what, that's one of the signs. That sign is very important when you look at the whole story, the story of redemption. Because that bow, bow will remind us of another Noah. The greater Noah. A greater Noah because he was also righteous and blameless. Actually, truly righteous and truly blameless. It will be another Noah, the greater Noah, that would also be faithful in his generation. A greater Noah that would always, that, that, that would always, that also will be sent to save people. The difference, though, is that in, instead of being inside the ark, he will have to stay outside the ark. And he will have to stay outside the ark so he could take the wrath that the people inside the ark deserved. And that when he did that, he was actually embracing and taking the boat that is pointing forward. Listen up, church. If that's what that means, God was giving us a shadow of what the cross will be like. In which instead of God punishing creation, he will punish himself. God in human form in Jesus Christ, Christ going to the cross to take the storm we all deserved. And when he did that, in Jesus Christ, He's making a new covenant. A covenant that says that if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. A covenant that says that he will not leave us nor forsake us all the way to the end of the world. A faith, a covenant that says that it doesn't matter if we struggle, he will never walk away. So the question for you and the question for me is this. Why wouldn't we trust that God? Think. Believe. Commit. Amen? Let's pray. My wonderful Savior, we are, we, we are amazed by the way you are how you are, 
on who you are. Lord, I'm amazed on how even in the midst of brokenness and evil and all these things that happened during, during Noah's war, Lord, you remain faithful. And you started again. And you raised a new generation of people. And you gave them a commandment to go and multiply and fill the earth. And it is because you chose people like Noah and his family that we are here today. We are the product of that covenant. And now we have received in Jesus Christ the new covenant. In which our God, in Jesus Christ, took the storm we deserve to give us freedom and to save us. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make of us, because of that, people that have thinking faith, convictional faith, and committing or committed faith. Could you please do that? And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...